0: Just a little heads-up to let you know that this episode contains some strong language. Hello, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gary. And welcome to episode 28 of Choose Film, a real retrospective podcast where we take a deep dive into a random film chosen by our guest host. Each season we will pick a particular theme and this season it's cinematic classics. Today we are joined by Liv Wilkinson who has decided that this episode we will be taking a look at Fargo. So, Liv, thank you for joining us. Thank you, you for having
1: me.
0: And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? This is the
2: worst bit because I could talk in the third person and say, "Liv is a graduate." <laughs> or I, could, or I could, I could, be modest and say, "Liv is lost." But uh, I'm. I've just. Uh, I graduated about um, nine months ago from uh, an MA in film directing, and I'm now a runner for a. Children's TV show based in Glasgow, but I'm doing that job via a company called Screen Skills. Um, who have you guys heard of Screen Skills at all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're they're great. So they um, they pick me up as an AD trainee, um, and they send us uh, job opportunities via email, which we then forward our CVs onto. Um, and it's it's great to be a trainee because it gives you that foundational basis, sort of unspoken of. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you don't get into a job when people assume knowledge. They assume you know as little as possible. And then when you come up with sparks of insight, they're like, oh, yes, very good. But I'm, I'm also obviously an avid film enthusiast. I have an Instagram, which I'm absolutely appalling at updating and keeping <laughs> ahead of. But when, when I do, I, I write reviews, some scathing, some gushing. And yeah, just avid film aficionado and enthusiast, I suppose. (laughs) Nice. I love that. That's a great job title. You know what? That's what I would have on my Tinder page if I was single.
1: Mm.
2: And tell us, why did you pick Fargo? Well, as as you know, Rebecca, I had huge turbulence deciding what to go for. (laughs) So when when I heard cinematic classics, I went, oh, God, because... um, it, the easy option, uh, not easy. That's that would be degrading film. The obvious option I would have gone for would be something like Train Spotting,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Scottish. I moved here because I fell in love with film because of Train Spotting, um, but it, it felt a bit like a film that I assume would already have been chosen or was going to be chosen in the very near future. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went for Requiem for a Dream because I did a dissertation on it, and as I was sort of regurgitating my knowledge to myself in order to prepare for this I started to feel automatically miserable because it is an amazing film but it is by far one of the most depressing films I have ever watched so I thought I'd do something that's sort of a juxtaposition of violence with sort of homestead humour and then I thought mm. Fargo is definitely in my top 10 ever so I'd love that's why I'd love to talk about that.
0: Oh, cool. I'd never seen it before, so I'd seen the TV series and I always had an interest in watching it, so I didn't even realise that there was a film. Wow. So I know, that's pure, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that'll be me handing my notice in. <laughs> 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 yeah, right,
2: good, but I'm the new host now.
0: We did it to four episodes. Woo. <laughs> um, you love the film so much. What would you rate it out of ten, then? Not like? oh, ten. Oh, easily. Easily. but I mean, the the first time I watched it, I think that
2: the way that I tend to rate films is not necessarily on solely visual or narrative quality, but genuinely just how much fun I have watching it. And then I think about the other aspects later. It is obviously a genuine visual masterpiece. And it was one of the Coen's uh, first films come out and it was sort of it set the groundwork for a new kind of cinema but at the same time I think above everything else if you don't have fun watching a film Mm -hmm. and when I say fun I don't mean you have to be screaming fuck yeah at the screen with like a bunch of beers (laughs) and like popcorn flavor but you have to be emotionally invested and I think there is an aspect of fun within any good film whether it's good or sad I feel like Mm -hmm. fun is an emotion that isn't just associated with happiness yeah. i, mean, I no, manchester by the sea isn't exactly called a fun film maybe yeah. that was just a speech full of a load of shit but <laughs> 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 people are gonna listen to this and be like who is this girl <laughs> chatting complete crap
0: no I, I totally get what you're saying i gave the film a nine but as you're such an enthusiast i'm looking forward to Discussing where's that one gone? I know where's the one. Let's see if we can find it. um Gary, what did you rate the film?
3: I would go for an eight point five, I think, and that's because I know like that is a cinematic classic. There's no doubt, and this is where I'm really surprised, Rebecca, that you actually didn't know it was a film because I feel like everyone has heard of Fargo, even if they <laughs> haven't seen Fargo. And but I, the first time I watched this film. It actually annoyed me so much. I don't know why. Know well, it was, uh, uh,
2: is it the mannerisms?
3: I think so. I think it's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: sure. Oh yeah. Well, yeah.
3: <laughs> and um, So going in going in like the second time or the third time watching it, I was prepared for that and I, enjo- I enjoyed it so much more.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: I think when you get over that and are mentally prepared, because I didn't know about yeah. the accents and how they spoke, but then going into the second time, I was like, yeah, this is for me.
0: Yeah. I totally get you because, as a first-time watch, I was getting—I could feel that irritation creeping in of how they spoke.
3: It's the cop. It's the the <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, Margie's partner who's out at the crime scene with her.
0: Yeah. And oh yeah. She's like
3: working the crime scene, he's like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs>
2: See, it's those idiosyncrasies that I feel bodes really well because it—it's one of those films that reminds the viewer that behind the violence and the crime... See, it's, it's, the, it's the idiosyncrasies that I feel bring the real charm to the film within the violence, because it's easy to watch, essentially, action films and to watch these ideas of characters. Like, you've got your James Bond, who is essentially in the idea of the man, and then you've got in Fargo, Marge, with those small vocal tendencies, as well as her colleagues, you get... Mm-hmm. A, ho- a wholesome and a homely, almost vibe to it amongst the violence to show that there are multi layers within this narrative, and that I think goes also towards the pregnancy of March, which is yeah. essentially not mentioned. But what it does is it adds layers to the fact that this isn't a town which is solely described by the crime that has just happened, mm-hmm. and the fact that w- when at the start it says this is based on a true story, obviously we all know that's that's a load of bollocks.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, we know that now, but I suppose at the time people might have assumed that it wasn't. Someone tried to go and find the money, supposedly, and died out in the snow trying to find it.
0: Well, that's just natural selection at that point, isn't it? Yeah. That's a nice yeah. grim fact. Is that your fun fact of the day, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> it can be. <laughs> well, for our listeners at home, here is a little synopsis. Jerry is a car salesman who has gotten himself into debt and is so desperate for money that he hires two thugs to kidnap his own wife. Jerry will collect the ransom from her wealthy father, paying the thugs a small portion and keeping the rest to satisfy his debts. The scheme collapses when the thugs shoot a state trooper.
1: (laughs) You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? See, these are personal matters. Personal matters?
3: Huh? Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something hard, jeez.
0: It's terrible.
1: Oh, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR.
2: I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. Is. DLR? No, they said no
1: cops. Here's the second one. So
2: we got a trooper pull someone over. Is this a new
3: card, then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell.
2: There's a high speed pursuit. We got a shooting. And then this execution type deal. $3 million dollars,
1: a lot of damn money. They got my daughter. Hi,
2: to hunt.
1: Brunches and lunch, Margie. What
0: are
1: those,
3: night
0: crawlers? Oh, yeah, look pretty good. How's Jean? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. You were having sex with a little fellow then. Yeah. So, as you will know, we will all go around picking three positive points on the film. Gary, what is your first point?
3: I just love the scam in general that these guys try to pull off. And I think it works really well because it's everyday people trying to pull off this heist but they can't even get, like, the time of the meeting right to begin with. Like, when they go to the bar and it's like, oh, you said it was this time. Oh, no, uh, Shep told us it was this time, blah, blah, blah. And after they actually sit down and have the meeting, Jerry actually says, I've got every confidence in you both. And right away I'm thinking, well, I have no confidence in any of you. <laughs> so from the get-go you're like, this isn't going to work. And the film shows, like, how quickly your life can turn for the worst by committing what these guys think is like the most simplistic crime ever. But the problem is, Jerry keeps changing the rules, and then so do the the kidnappers, then the stepfather gets involved. And just other small things, like they try and kidnap Jerry's wife in broad daylight when there's these big bay windows, and I love that scene where the kidnapper goes up, (laughs) and he's balaclava, and he's He's looking looking for her. And he's like searching the house and she's sitting watching him and he just can't see her. So just small things like that as well. And when the police pull over the two kidnappers and Carol, Steve Buscemi, he says to Jerry's wife, keep still back there or I'm going to have to kill you. But he says it in a way that is so unconvincing that you're like, this is definitely his first time trying to do something like this. And it just like gets more and more chaotic from there. When everything goes, haywire. The kidnappers ask Jerry for more money. I think they ask him for, like, 80,000. Mm-hmm. And Jerry pretends that he can't get that money, even though he's asked the dad for, like, £1 million. So even at this point, he thinks he can still pull this off, even though everything is, like, crumbling below. And at mm-hmm. this point in the story, he's still trying to be, like, this big man. And he's still trying to think that he can be not a gangster, but he can live in this life of crime when... You can quite clearly see from even just when he's getting interviewed by Marge that he just crumbles when she asks him any question.
2: Mm-hmm. I think I think what I completely um, agree with what you're saying. I think it's so in this case with this film, it's really hard to differentiate where the credit solely lies. Is it with the Coens or is it with Steve Mishimi and uh, Peter Stormer? Have I pronounced that surname right? Stormare?
3: I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's what I've, I've got with.
2: <laughs> I think it, it's because sometimes in films you can watch it and you can say, you know, for instance, you'll watch Glenn Close in a film and you'll be like, right, well, that, that's an artist at work. Mm-hmm. And then in other films it's difficult because, as as we said earlier, the idiosyncrasies and the patterns in the dialogue are so specific, you're wondering whether it's down to the the Coens or the actors or just a perfect harmony. What it feels to me is like the perfect domesticated ideal of the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. I genuinely believe these characters feel like this is a, a harmless crime because they, in in their minds, you know, we're not going to kill her. We're not. We're just going to get some money from someone who's already got money, and then it's all going to be fine, and she's going to go back, and it'll be back to domestic bliss.
3: I think you are right, except for Peter Sarmiel's character, because. The way he plays that as he's like a loose cannon. Well, he's not actually, he's he's the opposite of a loose cannon. He's just waiting to snap with his character. He doesn't care who he has to kill and he's like almost the wrong man for the job.
2: Now, I see, I see, I see what you're saying. There, there is a sort of lack of depth in his eyes, isn't there? There's it, There's a nonchalant sort of attitude that goes towards his mm-hmm. character. And I wonder whether it is because he thinks this is an easy job for me, I'm not going to have to kill anyone, or if a part of him through that narrative gets more and more focused on the prize that he thinks, Mm -hmm. right, now now I'm going to do what it takes to get this money. But for the fact that they're late for the original attack or kidnap kind of goes to show how... um, God, I've forgotten his name. It's so bad. Uh, oh, get, I'm, These these character names are so hard to pronounce and I just hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, Gear, That's what I was
0: going to go for. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> character seems to be um, so unfazed by it, the fact that they're not even there at the right time. Yeah. Gere. Perhaps there is something that's lacking in the beginning of it that grows within him towards the end. But there's a really interesting uh, scene where Carl tries to have a conversation with Gare and he just he just can't be asked. There's nothing in his face. There's nothing in his attitude.
3: It also makes you wonder about how much he cares for the money because, obviously, towards the end he um, kills Carol with the the wood chipper, and there's no chance of him getting the money at that point.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: The whole scene, which is so funny, where he's like. I'm keeping the car. He's like, no, we need to split the car. And it's like, how the fuck do you split a car? And he's just saying that because to, almost to wind him up, Gear or whatever his name is, um, has already made a decision to kill Carol at that point. And he's like, I'm yeah. going to wind you up before it. I don't know. I, I think he's almost a complete psycho.
0: <laughs> I think he is as well. He's very, he's quiet all the way through. And immediately at the beginning, you kind of, when you see the three characters, it's almost as if, okay, Carl's running the shots, he's in charge. And they've got this kind of like brotherly, weird, kind of double act relationship where you feel and trust that Carl is in control. So when they're in the police car and he's like, I'll take care of it. Sorry, when the police arrives and pulls them over and he says, it's okay, I'll take care of it. He trusts that and you're like, okay. And then immediately we've just had this huge twist of gear going, no, no, I'm going to take care of the situation now. So much so that, he then <laughs> carries on to kill the the car that drives by and he just takes matters into his own hands. And I feel like Carl's underestimated him and it kinda questions what the relationship is, that how long has he known this man for, like
3: And how he you knows some...
0: him. Exactly. Yeah Where yeah, where on earth do you begin <clears throat> to meet somebody like that? Of course. All three of them sort of underestimate this scam when jerry tries to cancel it going i've had a change of plans it looks like i'm going to get an investment from from my father-in-law anyway can we cancel it and he's like no no i can't get in touch with him he's like okay no problem thanks anyway like it's like uh, these people are kidnapping your wife like there's all of them underestimate in a, in a weird quirk of narrative
2: um if anything Gare is the least psychopathic out of all of them. Because (laughs) at least his psychopathic psyche is in correlation with his tendencies. Jerry, however, has these sort of grounded, stumbling, fumbling, domesticated tendencies, particularly in his um, vocal inflections, Mm -hmm. that doesn't correlate to the fact that he has just tried to orchestrate the kidnapping of his wife. Mm-hmm. So there, there's something that I can associate. What? Well, no, I can't associate, sorry, I'm not I'm not psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would say I am, but there's there's something to be said, I think, for the fact that Greer is, and I'm so scared that I'm just butchering his name.
3: It's fine. But, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's listening. And it's also a character, so he's not.
2: <laughs> but there, there's something to be said for the fact that at least his Character is in correlation with his actions. What's what I find more sinister is people who aren't in correlation mm-hmm. with their psyche. God, there's so many, there's so many layers to this film. It's so impeccably written.
3: Even when yeah. Jerry um, finds out that he doesn't quite find out what's happened, but Carol phones him and says, "Blood has been shed," mm-hmm. and at no point does he even worry what my wife. Yeah, he also just then thinks you're not getting any more money. We've already came to an agreement. This is yeah. the deal, and it's weird because any non-person would be like, what do you mean blood has been shed? Whose blood is she okay? Mm-hmm. And there's none of that. He's quite cold actually.
0: Yeah, because his priority though is, you know, not losing face and you know redeeming himself. Like he just wants to be in a better place what he classes as a better place and his wife is almost like a secondary thought like she is just part of the solution clearing up all that debt this is why I'm I'm kind of saying like it seems like he underestimates what he's actually asked for
2: because he doesn't
0: know these men he said can you kidnap my wife it's like what did you think was going to happen like they were just going to open the door and go right can you just go and sit in the car for us and put on <laughs> that bag over your head like we're just going for a wee drive and we'll return you in a few days time like and even when he speaks to them again, like on the phone, it's almost as if he is above like their status as well. The thing is, yeah,
2: so the, this film is is designed, um, I believe, to be almost a um, caricature of action films and of crime films because of the exaggerated characters mm-hmm. and the juxtaposing humour that s- some people believe is sort of almost like comic relief as opposed to something that actually adds to the narrative. I think otherwise, but...
3: The thing is as well, the living where the characters live, there doesn't seem to be much for life and there's that need for thrill and adventure. And mm-hmm. because the towns are so quiet and everyone seems a bit almost... They seem to be in their 95 jobs. They've got their routines. They go home to the family, have dinner. The mum seems to be a stay-at-home mum and things like that. There's this idea of we can have a bit of thrill here and as you said, nobody's going to get hurt. And mm-hmm. and it just and, But at the same time, I feel like these characters, because there's no sense of thrill, they're almost all about to snap. Even take the, the guy that comes into Jerry's office uh, to do with the, the coat of paint that's been put in his car, mm-hmm. like he's about to actually flip, and I think it is because there's nothing else to do in this town. So when something goes wrong, or there's a reason to get emotional, they take it to the extreme.
2: I think also that's that's part of the reaction from Marge and her colleague when they first initially go to investigate the crash that occurred um, from the shooting. And uh, no. this, this is, you know, this isn't a town where things extreme occur. Unless mm-hmm. they do, they're freak accidents. So there's a there's a sense of um, not so much lack of compassion, but lack of understanding of the severity of the situation from Marge and her colleague. Yep. and you get you obviously get that from the mm, yards <laughs> and the, how the conversation will digress into talking about food, for instance. Um. Or how Marge gets a call very early in the morning, and the first thing that her husband thinks of is, "I'll make you eggs before you go to work." Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, by the fact that a woman who is ex- the uh, f- obviously the third trimester of her pregnancy mm-hmm. is still out on the field, out with what is seen as an ex- well at, at the time is seen as a, almost like an extreme incident, as opposed to an extreme attack. So yeah, the, the the small town element of it only plays to its favour to how extreme it is. I think if something if this, if this was set in somewhere like New York City or LA, I don't think the film would have quite
0: as impact as it does. It's a bit like when um, with Hot Fuzz, I guess. I don't know why it makes me think of that, but that whole like big cop in a small town—it's not expected of them to be associated with that level of crime. What's your first point, Liv? This is actually
2: pretty much why I chose this. So when I was studying, um, I learned a director's technique called beats and verbs. The beat is a section of the script that consists of uh, an acting verb for an actor. So for instance, you'll have a part of the script where, say, if you've got two characters, in the in the point I'm going to make, it's going to be Marge and Jerry, where Jerry will be um, passive and Marge will be insistent. And... That can change through one line. So for instance, there's a scene where Marge goes to see Jerry um, in his car lot, because she's investigating a missing car. And obviously the missing car is associated with the scam. So there's um, a scene where Marge comes in and she says, "Um, have you got this car on the lot? And he says, "Uh, no, we don't. Thank you for coming in, essentially. And she remains persistent. So it's a new beat. And what I would assume would be her her acting verb, if that's what the Coen's did, was that her verb would be insistent and uh, Jerry would be dismissive. And that would be one beat. And -hmm. then the beat would change as Jerry snaps. And there's a moment in there when Jerry really tries to proselytise his innocence. And he does it in an aggressive manner, which is something that completely changes Marge's character that we've seen her in the entire film. Through the whole film, she remains fairly open. She's honest. She's hospitable um, gentle, you could even say. And then suddenly she begins to be more. It's quite like authoritative and quite. Authoritative. That would be the way. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's the best way I put it. More authoritative, more orthodox to her job. Yeah and within the script there's so many moments where basic elements of the dialogue it could just be an eh inflection or an oh inflection that completely changes the way that the scene dynamic works so when you watch the scene you don't just come out and watch the scene and you think okay this is a lighthearted conversation or this is a heavy conversation this is a confrontation this is a there's so many mixed emotions within the dialogue and so many that actually juxtapose each other some people find the comedy within the dialogue and within the idiosyncrasies of the character to be uh, a little bit hyperbolic
1: mm-hmm. and
2: consider them to be exaggerations of what Minnesotan residents are like. I've I, I've only met two people from Minnesota and I have to admit they are nothing like <laughs> people in Fargo. <laughs> but at the same time, Minnesota's a big place. And so although I've gone the very long way about explaining it, and I apologize. Well, I think one of the points that I really like is the fact that the Cohen brothers carefully constructed every single, eh, oh, oh, no, oh, yeah. Every single bit was perfectly composed as though it was written like a song. The actors were not allowed to change a single bit of it, which for some actors, they would find a little bit annoyed and uh, annoying because, you know, they like to have their own take on it. And I completely understand that if you're playing the character, you must own some of the character. The Cohen brothers insisted that these were all there for a reason. It's almost as though they were writing a script in the nature of a song. And I've heard, I can't remember who said it, but I remember listening to a YouTube video or a podcast and uh, someone saying, if the script doesn't read like a song, something's wrong. Oh, that rhymed.
0: (laughs) You're a poet and you didn't know it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We could go on all day with it. I know. I um, know,
3: I think you're absolutely right, and especially in that scene with uh, Marge and Jerry, when there is that sudden shift, and what's great is half of that shift is actually done with just her facial expression as well, mm-hmm. and the beat that's placed in there because there's like this ugly pause when Jerry shifts his tone, her whole body language as well as her dialogue, everything changes. It's almost like when a kid talks back to their parent. Yeah, and the parent takes that pause, and it's like you watch your tone with me. That's mm-hmm. the kind of feeling that you get from it, and mm-hmm. I think after that she knows something's up, and that's like yeah. her drive to to work this out now.
2: Well, what's interesting is the scene that um that is shown prior to it is a scene where she meets an old an old friend from college, and he tries it on with her. Essentially, she's happily married. and He tries it on with her. Um, he lies to her in order to try and get to her. He lies about his so called wife, etc. Um and there's a moment where you see her in her police car and she's contemplating the sentiment of lying. Despite being a police officer, it's the sentiment of lying that that leads her to think something's not right about Jerry. She's met Jerry before, but she's waiting in the car. She's thinking to herself, someone who I knew and trusted lied to me. I've got I've got to Yeah. Yeah. And it's with that sentiment of lying that she comes in and you can, you can tell she she's got a game in her. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this isn't mentioned in the film. And I think it's good that it's not mentioned, but she's obviously heavily pregnant and I believe she feels underestimated because yes. of that. And she, fe- and she feels as though she's overlooked because she's pregnant and because she's a woman in the police force and There is a certain element to it where Jerry does switch. His mood shifts and his mood becomes incredibly condescending to her, um, denies her of any sort of intellectual credit, maybe because she's a woman, because she's pregnant, because she's physically incapable of running as fast as he is, as you see him dart off Mm -hmm. in a few minutes. So I I believe there there is an element there of she's finished being underestimated. Great moment. I just love Frances McDormand in general. She is my favorite actress. Um, she's one of those people who I would not know what to say if I met her. Um, so There's a moment where she points her gun towards Gareth. He's um, putting Carl's leg in the wood chipper. And her facial expression, it's like one of those when a child has just seen their brother do something incredibly naughty mm-hmm. and they're a, they're, they don't know whether to scream. Or to shout but she shoots and it's her facial expressions that really come out. I don't know whether that's a really rubbish example but that's the only way that I can really put it on the spot.
3: Well, it yeah. goes back to what we were saying earlier about how this town hasn't really witnessed anything like this and so at that point with the chipper, after everything else she's been through It's like the call to action, like she's now going to have to show that she is a cop and she knows what she needs to do in these circumstances that, as a cop, she's not normally in because it is such a quiet town.
1: Yeah.
3: And just because it's a quiet town, it doesn't mean that she can't handle these horrid acts of crime. She's like, she can take charge and she can be that cop that you would find in something like, I guess, as we said, earlier, New York or these gritty places, Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: But the, the script the script has been so meticulously written and it's so interesting to see how it has been decoded and to see how it's been broken down into making these extraordinary characters, which I don't think you see in any other film. I don't
0: think you'll find another film with such grounded yet eccentric characters. No, well, that takes it very nicely onto my first point, which is sort of what is said between the lines, like, the politeness this whole like idea of like subtext of you you absolutely know what she's thinking and both of them know exactly what they're talking about and that time when she goes back the second time there's that conversation of um i know you you know about this missing car and he's like well i know that you know but i'm not gonna admit anything and it's almost like this like underlying like conversation the true conversation underneath but we don't Speak that way we speak, and a really positive or like, um, polite, interesting. Like you know, Jerry says several times. Look, I've been really accommodating and really understanding, but. I don't know, it's just a very interesting way of how they use the dialogue and what is actually being said under the line, but they don't choose to do that. They choose to do something really different and really interesting, which is just so captivating as a viewer because you're like, why would they not be screaming and shouting at this man? Or why would she not be furious at him lying to her in that interview where she's asking where the car is? She knows that he's lying. Why does she not come out and say it? But I just feel it's just so much more interest and so much more depth um, which again just lends to the characterisation.
3: Yeah, I think like that scene with Carlot that we've quite clearly dissected quite a lot <laughs> I think it's because like the two of them, as you said Rebecca, the two of them know what each other is thinking and also as a police officer I guess there is that part of you that has to be civil even if you think the person is guilty but it's the way in which they do it and it Takes it back to that thing of like how your mum would speak to you or whatever because there's a car missing and she's like, We'll just go check, go check the car lot. And all he can do is try and wriggle his way out of that. Mm-hmm. And it's the same idea when you know the guy's always on the phone to him asking him for the license plates and he's like, Okay, I'll fax it over. And he's like, No, no, don't fax it. I've already spoke about this. You can't fax it. And he's like, Okay, I'll send it over. And it's yeah. basically. He's basically like a weasel. He's just like he's like a wee weasel, and he just is trying to get out of all these situations by using by using dialogue, and nobody's falling for it, and that just puts more weight under that character, and it's kind of the same with like the Steve Buscemi's character and Peter Sarmers, like the dialogue that they have, they, like they could be talking about anything like that. scene in the car, where they're just driving, and Carl's trying to start up a conversation. Gear is giving nothing away and that obviously, you're almost then waiting for him to snap later on. So by using dialogue it's about absolutely nothing, it's their reaction to that dialogue that says so much more.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. If that makes any sense at all.
0: (laughs) Gary, what's your next point?
3: (laughs) So my next point is basically the way gender is looked at, I think, in this film as well because all the men are pretty much men who think they can get this deal of a lifetime and it's all about money and being the big shot and they're actually all, in fact, idiots. Mm -hmm. Like, every one of them. So you've got, as we've spoke about, Jerry who wants to be this big shot and he's not respected by his stepfather. He's looked at as a bit of a loser. So he himself then doesn't really feel like a man and if he can pull this gig off, he thinks he'll be more respected You know, he'll be respected by the kidnappers, but also then he'll have the money to start this business deal. And then he'll be respected by his dad. And with Jerry's character, I don't think it's ever actually explored of why he owes this big, huge debt. And I think that's great because we don't really need to know. It's not about what's happened in the past. It's about what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when Jerry asks his dad for a loan, and he's like, it'll be a good investment. It'll be good for um, the wife and son. His stepdad says to him, you don't need to worry about them. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say, you don't need to worry, Jerry. It's you don't need to worry about them. So Jerry means nothing to him. Yep. And you you do wonder that, is it one of these weird relationships where he's just trying to do this to to show his stepdad, even though his, dad, his stepdad will never know what's happened if... He pulls it off. Like he'll still inside go, I'm better than what you think. And then you've got the other side of that, and you've got Margie, who's this. I don't want to say female protagonist because she basically comes in halfway through. But you've got this female hero, and compared to all the other idiots in it, like she's smart, she's intelligent, she's got this drive. I mean, look how quickly she solves the crime scene of. Um, the car that's flipped over and what's happened to the cop and the other cop is um, standing there with his coffee just agreeing with everything Mm -hmm. she says so like she'll go oh it looks like this guy's quite a big guy because of the size of his footprint and he's just like yeah? Yeah and that's all it says (laughs) but Margie's also great because she doesn't think she's better than anyone because she is smarter so she yeah. doesn't. She doesn't slag the other cops, like who are clearly quite idiotic compared to her, and even the prostitutes in the bar. Like she's like, so what did what did they look like? Oh, kind of funny looking, and she's like, funny looking how? And then she's like, I don't know, just kind of funny. And she never was like, oh my god, I'm getting nowhere here. She does see it through like great performance, with tell, facial expressions.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know what? Well, that's but, something that I was thinking as well. It is the way that she treats everyone with such humility. And she's got those prostitutes in the bar who obviously, you know, I'm a huge advocate for if you want to be a sex worker, be a sex worker. But at the same time, they're obviously lacking in, you know, intelligence where Marge makes up for it. And yet she never treats them like that. When they say, you know, it was kind of funny looking, funny looking how? What Just kind of funny looking. She goes, oh, yeah, OK,
0: and it's yeah. that humanization that she has with everybody. Yeah. I was just thinking as well, like she she could have taken them to the police station and said, Look, these guys are wanted for murder. Do you remember what they look like? But she didn't. She interviewed them in the bar or the motel, I'm not too sure, and was like didn't mention anything about them, you know, murdering anybody. And just was like, Oh, I heard you had a little interaction with a couple of guys a few nights ago. Would you mind just telling us a wee bit about them? And she just treats them with, like, so much respect. Like, everyone is treated with the same level of respect.
3: Including the the guy that she meets, you know, um, who lies mm. about... Yeah, Mike. Uh, yeah, so he he's obviously a bit creepy rounder. But yes. she still, like, he tries to sit next to her in the booth and she's like, no, no, thanks, if you can just um, stay at the other side. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, it's just because then I don't need to turn my head. Which is clearly not the reason, it's because he's a creep, but she will never say that to his face because there's that act of kindness still there.
2: That was one of the last scenes that the Coen brothers wrote in the film, as they felt they needed something to bring Marge's character forward a little bit more with regards to the, her depth of character and the depth of her life. Um, as a sort of gentle reminder that she is in this almost domesticated bliss and that there are people who are out there to change that. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know whether that is the exact reason why they put it in, but I know that they wanted to put it in because they needed to give Marge something a little bit more. And I think without that scene, although from your first watch, you do kind of, I don't know about you, sorry. I watched that and I thought that was a a weird turn in the story. I don't know why that was really relevant, but the more that you think about it, the more you're like, well, the character needed something to push her further. She needed something to almost advance her in her way of thinking because before she you could argue that she was a little bit naive um she was intelligent and she understood what other people were doing and she could read she could read people very well but at the same time she hadn't reacted to it and then when he tries to get into the booth of her you do see a change in her character and then obviously you see her in the police car and that leads her to think right well I, i did something then i've got to do something now yeah
3: yeah I think I don't know how to call it naive. Maybe maybe with the the story of like the guy's wife um, had cancer and passed away. Like she might be naive to believe that, but I don't think she's naive to meet up with him. I think that is almost that act of kindness. With I think she knows deep down that this guy perhaps has always fancied her, but just out of respect to someone else, he's asked to meet. So I'll give him the opportunity to meet as friends, and if he tries anything, then that's the end of it but rather than guessing that he's going to try something therefore not meeting him she's given him that opportunity to just be friends who both of them are in town that day or whatever and then when he tries these moves then she finds out he lies she's almost done with him
2: yeah I, I never got I never got the um the feeling that she knew he liked him because I don't think she's one of those people who thinks other people fancy her if that makes sense
3: I think you can like know someone maybe has fancied you in the past but that doesn't mean that you find yourself like overly attractive or anything like you just take it as as is almost
2: I just I just didn't get that feeling from her that she she knew there was compassion I I, I only get a sense that she's fundamentally someone who is a believer of friendships as 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 a a sole reason for interaction with her. I don't know. I, I just, I she just, I just never got the. Imp- I, I always got the impression that when he tried to come on to her, she was she was quite shocked.
0: Yeah, I got. That I, well.
2: I got
3: it as she was shocked at how fast he made that move. <laughs> like he was, I mean, she just, was pretty too. blunt, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but from like, well, even just the fact that he phones her like half eleven at night to then like start just talking to her. There's obviously some sort of obsession there
0: yeah i kind of read it as like perhaps maybe when they were at school or college or whatever it was that it was almost as if there could have been a thing but there wasn't and that when Mm -hmm. he calls her she's a bit like i don't know it felt a bit like unfinished business for me and there's like a little bit of a look that she has when she says that she's going to the city i can't remember the name that they give that actually is it twin cities or something
3: yeah, I can't
0: I remember. Yeah, when she says when she says that she's um going, um her husband goes, Are you? And she's like, Yeah. And I don't know, part of it always like kinda felt to me as if maybe at one point she had a conversation of, Look, i you really like, kinda this guy, like I used to like like him at school and it never ever happened and I've met you and it felt risky when she was going to meet him. As a first time watch,
3: I mean, I didn't get that because I thought like the husband was just questioning it, as in, like, do you know everything? And this seems to be a surprise to the characters, like, with all mm. again, going suppose, back to her, like, yeah. The, yeah. So, like, she's saying, I'm going to this city, and he's like, Are you? Like, it's, it's almost a way of making conversation, but they question everything.
2: It's a bit like when someone from, like, a country, country town says they're going to London and their family goes, London, or something like that. It's, <laughs> so, it, so to me, it, yeah, it more seemed to be like, oh, you're going to the big city, are you? I, don't, I, don't, I just... I, just I, n- I never got the feeling that mm-hmm. Marge is the kind of person to be aware of someone's romantic feelings towards her. I, I think when she when she was hit with the fact that an old school friend was trying it on with her when she's quite clearly unavailable. Um, that is what, that's what really pushes her. And I don't know whether that changes her whole character in its entirety or whether that just sort of opens up a door for her way of thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how the three of us have all got a different interpretation of her going to meet this guy.
2: I, I like that though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I
0: it's more exciting. <laughs> Margin norm. So I,
2: I say to my boyfriend sometimes, you know, I, I, I want to be like your Marge to your Norm I think they're they're like probably one of the best couples in film. Yeah, and there's a there's a weird fact that um, I believe it was Francis McDormand made for like a backstory for Norm's character, and it's that he used to be in the force as well, but he decided to retire from the force and take up painting.
3: I, I could see that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He seems like such a lovely guy. Like, although. It doesn't have like a lot of like dialogue or scenes or like role, if you like. But well, yeah, that's it's that's, nice.
3: that's shown in that scene where he does get up to make her eggs. Yes, like it doesn't matter what time it is, you're not leaving this house without breakfast. And I, if it's four in the morning, yeah. two in the morning, then you haven't got up. You're getting some food in you first.
2: And of course, mm. the final scene of the entire film is them telling each other they love each other whilst they're sat in bed watching. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose it, it, that that's that's kind of i think the best way to end it because it just sort of shows that there, there is to quote elton a circle of life <laughs> there's the, yeah. you know there, there's there's the big scam but we are introduced to marge as she gets out of bed to investigate the crimes and it all happens And it's all this big wild adventure but at the end of the day what do you go and do you get into bed and you start again Mm-hmm. move on to the next crime and she'll move on to the next one i think it's a really nice way to round it off well actually what we've just been speaking about is nicely brought me on to my second point because oh, I, think, I know isn't that beautiful when that? <laughs> <laughs> that's a christmas miracle <laughs> so i think my my second point is to do with the framing of the film listen i could talk about the cinematography in a whole but that's like a whole that's a whole podcast worth of conversation but I'll talk specifically about the framing. Um, obviously, Roger Deakins is the DOP, and he himself is just an impeccable impeccable cinematographer. But what's something that's so interesting is um, a particular way that they frame the characters' relationships. So with Marge and um, Norm, you will never see uh, Marge and Norm exit the same frame. So, for instance, when you see uh, Norm make get well, Marge and Norm eating eggs in the morning, you see her then go out, to her car to get it jump started she never leaves the frame she leaves the yeah frame, the frame is still the same so there's these really interesting and intricate ways to frame the image to show that they are in each other's lives. um there's also the, of course the epic landscapes and whilst we're talking about these eccentric characters that have this weird warmth and you know authenticity towards them they're considered you could, I suppose, in relation to sunniness, and sunny weather, brightness, colour, and yet the film is so flat and bland, by made by the epic snowscapes mm-hmm. that are completely almost ruined at time by the blood. Um, but it's these epic snowscapes that I think really serve the story. It's so scarily contrasting to have these wild epic landscapes where there is nothing there and to fill it with so much excitement and so many almost thrilling aspects of crime in themselves. And the way that Roger Deakins frames that within the fact that the cars are driving towards you and the long takes allow for the film to keep its pace, and its pace is entirely within what what the Coen brothers want you to feel. Elements of true grit is actually that the, the film isn't called elements of true grit <laughs> the film is called true grit but in true grit they use this perfectly as well they will take you as an over the shoulder shot or they will take you um looking on the outside in for a house for instance and then as you get more involved in the story you will stop being from behind the shoulder and you'll be inside the action so your mm. shot reverse shots to the different characters won't be over the shoulder they'll be smack bang in the middle and when you watch the film that's something that becomes more apparent for instance We'll go back to that scene we've been speaking about loads, which is about Jerry and Marge's <laughs> conversation. Um, whereas previously it has been over the shoulder with Marge and Jerry. It goes right into the middle and the closer they get up to each other's faces, the closer the shot is and it tightens up. Just make it so visually epic. And that's, that's what great cinematography does, is it takes you from a place that you're not quite used to and puts you right bang in the middle of a strange situation, but makes you feel familiar with it. So yeah that's that's my long way of saying that I love Roger Deakins.
3: <laughs> I think it's where with Roger Deakins that he's known for like these really epic films like and his cinematography is known for it like 1917 Blade Runner 2049 um Skyfall and like heavily stylized films and what I love is it doesn't it keeps it simple but Still does stuff with the the camera and with the frame, but because the place is quite a simple small town as well, and these characters, other than this incident that occurred, these characters are living quite simple lives. So he doesn't try to do anything fancy. He tries to keep it like that so that you're engrossed in their world. You know, if if this had really heavily stylized cinematography, it would just feel weird. So just keeping it like that and working within the frame rather than doing anything too fancy. It's the same thing with um it's not it's not Roger Deacons, but it's the same with Ladybird. And yes. the cinematography in that, it's it's brilliantly framed. But what's within the frame is relatively simple.
2: I uh, yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's some there's something to really be said for relationships being told through a frame more so than through dialogue Some if there's anything i hate it's exposition in dialogue if there's anything i hate it's oh we've do you remember five years ago on our first date if there's anything i hate in films it's when it's I, I i'm a sort of show me don't tell me kind of person every relationship that you can see is explicitly told by framing um even in the restaurant scene with mike there's a scene where he snuggles up to her and it's obviously on a little bit of an o- a wider lens that is a little bit closer up um so that mike is invading her space it's claustrophobic but i i agree with um i agree with you gary there's 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 no need to go into complications is there no
0: Yeah, my next point was going to be. (laughs) I've I've written it down as I loved to the ending, but I didn't mean it like that. Like the film is finished. Um, I I
2: loved it when it's finished.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The end. No, it was specifically the moment after Marge catches gear and she's got him in the back of the car and it mirrors like the beginning of when Carl's trying to speak to him and get a conversation out of him he's he's given absolutely nothing you know she's like trying to speak to him we're used to her being quite dynamic and quite captivating and like oh yeah yeah and positive and things when she speaks so that this moment of just like pan straight questions of why did you do that and you know she just it's like her pondering it over and again like that moment of when she realizes you know that she can't trust people and people are lying to her which is then pushes her into interrogating him and that famous scene that we've discussed so many times (laughs) at the end it's it's almost as if not defeated but just quite like trying to understand and she even says that I'm trying to understand what that was all about and he still says absolutely nothing, and I don't know, I just really really love the scene, and just to tip it off as well, like they pass that big kind of lumberjack thing and I think they pass that as well when it's him and Carl in the car, I don't know when they see that too, so it's like a complete mirror of like him, Carl trying to have this conversation with Gare and trying to like, you know, find out more about him and understand him, and you know, I'm trying to get a conversation with you. you're not giving me anything back, and it's kind of the same. There's a moment in that speech
2: where she says something and it completely it completely rounded off the film for me. And she just says, and it's a beautiful day. Yeah. And it, it's, it's not, you know, it's okay. It's, it's a snowy day, it's white, it's the same as every single day. Yeah. Um, I guess for, for us in England, if we had epic snow everywhere, we would say, oh, this is a beautiful day. But for them, it's, it's an every day. And yes. she says, it, it's a beautiful day. And I remember watching that and thinking, I'd love to have the attitude of Marge that almost every day is capable of being this beautiful day. Yeah. And when she says, it's and it's a beautiful day, what that reflects is the fact that Gare's going to prison for a long time. So is Jerry. Carl's dead. Jean is never going to be the same again. And
0: we, Scotty, has no mum, no granddad, and his dad's going to prison. What's his future? Yeah.
3: This this ties really nicely to my third point, so I'm just going to kind of wrap them together. And so mine's about greed, like just the theme of greed in this film and wanting more. And these characters obviously are wanting this money. That's what it's all about. But they're also wanting more from life in general. So Jerry, through these incidents, has now lost his wife. He's been arrested his stepdad has been killed. His son has no family. Carl gets shot in the face before getting stuck in a wood chipper, and it's <laughs> all done out of greed. And with Marge, when she's like saying, "One, it's a beautiful day," and why did you let this happen, um, or why did you do this? Sorry, it's because she can't come to understand it because. In, this, in these small towns, she is actually content with the life she's got. Yeah, she's and really everyone, selfless. everyone around her isn't, and that's the issue. And that's why I think when she says that line, it's a beautiful day, because it is a normal day, but to her, normal days are absolutely fine. She's content with that, so to her, it is a beautiful day. And then when she gets home, that scene with her and her husband on the bed, and she comes into bed and he says they've just announced it. And as an audience viewer, the first time watching it, I was thinking, oh, they must be talking about like the news report and just announced mm-hmm. what's happened in in the small towns. But no, they're not talking about the crimes at all or all this exciting stuff that's happened. They're talking about his artwork in relation to the stamps. They've just announced that. And to the, those two, that's all they care about. They don't care about the money. Yeah, they're yeah. just happy with what's going on in their wee family. They've got a kid on the way. And, and to them that that's what life's about not money
2: need. that isn't not the one of the final lines you know two months to go mm-hmm.
3: yeah
2: it's a great focus on different people's um goals i suppose because everyone in a, everyone in the script has got to have a want and i've written scripts several times and the feedback that i always get is right what does this character want and it's so easy when you're writing to just get so caught up in the fact that you you what you want in the script is for this exciting incident to happen, but what you forget is why do people want it? Um, and that sounds so basic, but um, everyone's got such a distinct want, and I wonder whether Jerry's want is entirely greed or if it's for if it's greed for something that's physically substantial, like the money, or if it's greed for something different. For the I,
3: think
0: sort
3: of I think it's, I think it's. His his greed or his want is to to be known for something,
0: to be respected.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. To to be feared almost because he is mm-hmm. completely walked over, isn't he? He's this quite yeah. timid, quite a we quite a, can say quite a weasel guy. There's he's a, a bit. He's a bit slimy. He's a little bit. You know, he creeps onto the wood, woodworks. He's obviously never had any real respect in his life, and possibly this could lead to him receiving some respect if only it comes from himself. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um what would be your final point Liv? Um to be honest with you I um, I'm going to go for the acting to be honest. So as someone my my main focus when I've directed people before and you know I have I have very small experience in directing um I've probably made about five short films some of them have been very short. Um And my favourite thing to do above everything else is interact with actors. Um, As much as I love the editing process, I love the cinematography, I love going into production design, I think my favourite part is talking to the actors about their characters because I love seeing how they perceive things. I'm, I'm quite a talkative person anyway. I like discussing the psyche. I love going into why, who, how, where... Something I like to do when, when I have directed in the past is to ask irrelevant questions, such as um, I worked with a couple of your friends, Matt Boyle and Kyle Murphy. Yeah. And I worked on a film where it was set about a nuclear family in the eighties in Scotland. And I asked them each who does Andy support? Who was uh, Matt's character. And he said Rangers, I believe. And then I asked Kyle and he said something like Celtic. Um, I could be wrong, <laughs> but they said two different sports teams. It was completely not in the script, it wasn't part of their character profiles. But what I like to do is I like to learn more about the character and how the actor perceives the character. And uh, Matt, I believe he said Rangers. I said why he said because he's fiercely loyal, uh, because he's Protestant. But um, what's what I find really interesting is to see how actors dissect their characters and you can definitely see that in the performances in Fargo um Frances McDormand obviously she won her first Academy Award for it um and the really raw character authenticity and characterization she comes up with is one of someone who is capable of so much fuel and anger and you can see that in Frances's performances in other films like Free Billboards uh you know you can see that in so many different um aspects of her career. She's She's been in Nomadland, I hadn't seen that yet, but I'm really excited to see what she does with that. Mm. But the diversity in her acting throughout the film, it's actually pretty amazing considering her character, as we've said, is so grounded to few emotions, and yet the inflections in her face show such a diverse set of emotions. As obviously someone's come into this town and committed this extreme crime, you can. See, there are certain times where she does what the dialogue doesn't. And obviously, that's in service to the Cohen brothers, but also to her. And I have to say, big standout for Steve Bashimi, who I thought was brilliant in the film. Gare was great, he was a great character, but he was obviously quite one dimensional. Steve Bashimi's character, however, quite funny looking. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I think he was funny looking, not because he was Steve Bashimi, but because of his incredible uh, idiosyncratic. Ex-
0: well, I read that they they wrote that part with him in mind, like he was always going to be that part. So when they said like, he was kind of funny looking, because uh, actually that that's my final point as so, well. Is it Steve? I thought it was. I always thought it was Steve Buscemi. Am I?
2: Is it so, Steve? I thought it was Steve. Buscemi. I don't know.
0: Well, well, yeah. It felt like because they all said it, you could imagine like him being off camera, like having like a little laugh to himself, like oh, very nice. Thanks very much for that, but. um yeah, he was one of those characters as well where I kind of thought that at moments he was trying to be quite understanding, like with Greer and stuff in the car, when he's like, please speak to me. You don't want to speak to me. And when he's like, I'm really hungry. I want something to eat. And he's like, okay, well, we'll go get you something to eat. And then we'll also go and have some sex. Would that be okay? Like, he's he's just like such a really interesting character. And then when he snaps after um, Shep, you know, is beating him, uh, really violently. That's almost like the kind of turning point in him like that's when he snapped it's almost as if like he's he's been caught with his pants down obviously but um, there's a moment where you start to see Carl kind of like snap and everything and it's like oh my goodness like he was keeping it together for so long even when Gears, you know chasing after people to kill them because they've seen him kill the trooper Um there's that point in the film where he just completely snapped and he's like, I want the money, Jerry. Like, there's, I'm not messing about anymore. I need the money. I, I thought that was like a really interesting character arc. Like, although he, he's like opposite to Marge, there is a part of him where he's trying to be quite understanding and positive and then all of a sudden he's like, I've had enough. I just want my money and I want to get out of here. We're done. Yeah.
3: All the Corn Girls characters, whether they're... A main character, or just in one scene, they're all got their own weak quirks, yeah, which I absolutely love because no, nobody, in a way, nobody's normal, so yeah. y- y- your, your small characters shouldn't be. Everyone has their quirks and their traits, and they make sure every character's got that. So,
0: perfect. Well, and um, does anyone else have any other notes or anything that they didn't like about the film at all that they would want to change?
2: I hate I... the amount of junk food that they eat because it makes me want to eat all the junk food.
1: <laughs> mm.
2: There's this one bit where um, Marge and Norma are in this weird sort of canteen, and Marge has two plates of food. Oh, the buffy, yeah. That's, and that just makes me want to eat. That's the only thing. The film, genu- weirdly, the film makes me really hungry. I get what you mean.
0: See, see that moment where they do go to the buffet and she sits down with the food. I turned to my mum and went, "Did you have a lot of cravings when you were pregnant with me, my sisters?" And she was like, "No, not really." But it was quite funny how, like, <laughs> that prompted me to be like, "Here." Did you have? Were you like that? the <laughs> yeah, but again, I think that's
2: that's a really nice sort of characterisation. Yeah, like just the, the the junk food habit because I suppose that's the sign of a happy relationship, isn't it? If yeah. you eat like shit, I mean, I've put on two stone in ever since I met Craig. So
0: that
2: only, bo- that only both. Gee, thanks. Him. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Craig. Yeah.
3: Um, my only note is, I would have loved for somehow for it to finish on the buried money, like because yeah. it, it's buried and then it's just then no character or no camera shot, nothing goes back to just to go oh, it could still be out there. And I've just, like, even if it just ended on the the window scraper lying out the snow with, like, the credits rolling, just something. But, I mean, that's me really nitpicking.
0: No, yeah, that that was, like, the only thing I could think. It Not so much, like, a criticism, but, like, a kind of wonder of, I wonder what happened to that money. Like, would will anyone ever find it? And also, like, the son, like, as well, what will happen to him? But, yeah, they were more, like, pondered like me pondering over those points rather than I wish I knew. <laughs> See, I I
2: don't feel that way. I feel like I like when some things are just left unsaid, and some and I think the imagination is far more capable yeah. of picturing together something exciting to happen with that money than we than a camera could. I suppose the adage that that promotes is that the money's not important. The money actually. Yeah in a way, was the least serving element of the story because it started off as something about money, then it became something about money for the characters who have now deceased. And now that that character's gone, there's no one left to care about the money. Jerry's going for the rest of his life to prison. So I, I, I quite like, I love the note that it's left on where it's just Marge and Norm in bed, watching something completely mm-hmm. irrelevant, their son
0: or daughter's on the way. Has anyone's final ratings changed at all?
3: No, I'm I'm sticking
0: 8.5. I'm am sticking at my 10. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my 9 as well. Um, that's good. We've all left this completely unchanged. Yes. Yeah, so that yeah. chat that chat was for nothing. Um, <laughs> no. no one's changed their minds, so that's great. <laughs> well, we're going to take a little break and be back with the quiz, our fun fact of the day and Oh my god, our I forgot show- the quiz. <laughs> Oh, so am okay. excited now. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is. And our short film recommendations.
1: I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing.
2: Okay. Are you sure? Because, I mean, how do you know? Because, see, the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators are driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently?
0: The car's not from our lot, ma'am.
2: But how do you know that for sure without doing a...
0: Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager.
1: Yeah, but I
0: understand. We run a
1: pretty tight ship here.
2: I know, but, but well, how, how did they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here?
0: Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here and there there's no
1: uh... sir you have no call to get snippy with me
2: I'm just doing my job here
0: okay and we are back for our quickfire quiz round Gary and I will ask Liv five questions each based on the film and remember if I don't get any right (laughs) this is gonna be so embarrassing
2: (laughs) I did I did look up the trivia last night on IMDb so I'm slightly clued up oh don't worry Gary, do you want to go first?
3: Yeah, sure. So, question one: In which state is the city of Fargo located?
0: Uh, Minnesota. Yep. What does Marge's husband make for her before leaving for work? Eggs. Yeah.
3: You already. I know you already know the next one. What is Marge's husband called?
0: Norm. Yes. Mm-hmm. What time were Carl and Gear expecting to meet Jerry? Oh God! Oh, right.
2: Yeah. Don't know this one. Stab in the dark. <laughs> seven. Half past seven. Just went completely blank.
3: <laughs> um, when was the film released?
2: 97. 96. What? Shit! Really? <laughs> 96. Yeah, damn right. 96.
0: <laughs> what was the name of the motel that Carl and Geer stayed at? I know what it looks like.
2: <laughs> no, I'm, I've lost it. What is it? Blue Ox. Oh, no, I was, I was never going to get that, to be fair.
3: Um, who puts Jerry in touch with the kidnappers?
2: Oh, so embarrassing. <laughs> now, nah, what, what's the answer? Shit. Um, I where I have actually seen this film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, how much money are Kyle and Gear promised?
2: Um, it well, It's an 80,000, 80, isn't it? And then they bump it up to 1 million, but he promises half, so it's 40,000.
0: Correct. There's a lot of figures getting thrown about there. I was like, oh.
3: When Jerry's wife runs from the kidnappers, where do they find her hiding?
2: Bath slash
0: shower? Yeah. And what does Carl use to dig up a hole to bury the rest of the money? Oh, he uses uh, it's this weird sort of stick, isn't it? It's
2: like a little, little trowel sort of thing. <laughs> What's the name of it? It's an ice scraper. That's it, that's it. I knew what I meant. <laughs> <It's a wave.
3: laughs> oh, I'm sure we can give you that one.
2: <laughs> Yay! Yeah. I
0: never asked to be the best, just not the worst. Now we're on to our fun facts of the day. Gary, what's your fact of the day?
3: So my fun fact is that Volkswagen have actually sold more sausages than cars. So, the reason for it is, uh, with your car, you got a three-pack of five sausages, and the sausages became so popular, they started being sold in supermarkets.
0: I bet so, that fact somewhere. I think it's from the same site that
2: I got mine. <laughs> well. Yeah, if I was going to buy a VW, the one thing I think of is just sausages. Exactly. Um, Liv,
0: what was your fun fact of the day be?
2: Right, so, you know how everyone loves pandas?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. But, But they're so lazy that they don't reproduce. So like people have to go and sort of do stuff. Yeah. So the reason why they're so lazy is because they're actually allergic to bamboo and eucalyptus, which is what they eat. So they have over time evolved to be allergic to it. It gives them chronic fatigue. But because they're so lazy, the only thing they can be bothered to reach for is eucalyptus. (laughs) So they through evolution, have evolved to be lazy because they're so lazy they don't want to find any more food. Wow.
3: And that is the circle of life.
2: (laughs) That is the circle of life. They're trying to help pandas as much as they can, but they don't help themselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my fun fact of the day, sticking on the animal theme, (laughs) Um, a sheep, a duck and a rooster were the first passengers to take a trip in a hot air balloon. Were
2: they?
0: In seventeen eighty three the first hot air balloon was launched carrying a sheep, duck, and a rooster. I hope it there was ser-
2: someone operating the
3: machine as well. It sounds like this it sounds like the start of a bad joke.
0: It does. <laughs> or like the the little um, thing they should like ask at school or whatever, like Yeah, and yeah. Like, oh what like that puzzle they solve in yeah. the office. Well, to round off the show, we're going to recommend a short film that we've watched that's available online. Um, Gary, what is your short film recommendation? So mine
3: is called The Workplace, and it's set in the future, and it follows a man's first day in an office, but it's got serious, like, Black Mirror vibes within it. And I don't want to say too much more than that, but it's on YouTube, and it's part of the Dust Sci-Fi channel. So check it out.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. so um the film i'd recommend is a it's a film that's 30 minutes long so it's kind of a long short film it's called detainment and it's about um the interviews of john venables and robert thompson following the killing of james bolger and um that that horrifying incident incident that horrifying murder sorry um was something that really like captivated England and the world <clears throat> in the 90s because of the age of the killers. Yeah. And in the film, there are no bars held toward the acting that the children display. And I was watching it. I've worked I've worked with child actors before, and I've got to say, it's fairly monumental, the performance that they get out of the children. Um, it's a hard watch, but it's a good watch, and it's worth watching. Nice. Sounds good. Well, sounds great. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> It's so it's so hauntingly graphic, while showing you almost nothing at all. It's it's amazing. It's a great it's a great feat in narrative and dialogue, especially.
0: Mm. <laughs> Mine is a complete contrast. <laughs> so my short film recommendation is called Thatching Eggs, which is quite apt as we're recording this on Easter Sunday. Um, but yeah, it's a 3D animated short film by someone called Max Marlow. He wrote and directed it, but he really wants to work or wanted to work with Pixar um, like on an internship and was unsuccessful, unfortunately, but really wanted to make a short film. So reached out to the the universe and got all of these people to help make the film with him and over lockdown, I think it was made remotely. So um, yeah, and uh, basically it's about a satellite dish looking after some hatched eggs um <laughs> it's a bit uplifting but yeah i just thought um quite sweet quite cute you know yeah wonderful well Lev, thank you so much for joining us no thank you for having me
2: i hope um i hope this is easy to edit
0: <laughs> yeah good luck gary <laughs> can you let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and just keep up to date with you and any of your projects uh, yes. So my main account is Live Louisa. Um, on there,
2: I sometimes also do chaotic cooking videos. They're just they're just nonsense, <laughs> but somehow get a reception. <laughs> it's all for attention. <laughs> um, and then I've got also uh, Live uh, Film and Review, where I um, yeah, discuss some of my favourite films. I do reviews. I do polls quite a lot of the time um and that's also where i advertise the work that i have done um the advertisement of myself is few and far between other than that yeah that's me
0: <laughs> no perfect um well i'm rebecca riddle and you can follow me on instagram at riddle rebecca and twitter at riddle r
3: and i'm still Gary. And you can still follow me at G Pro on Twitter and Instagram.
2: Still Gary sounds like a really good name for, like, a pseudonym. Oh, that's Still Gary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got, don't worry, mate. We've got Still Gary on the job.
0: <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please remember to rate and review the podcast. You can also leave your comments and let us know your thoughts on the Please be nice to me. I'm very vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) Please send your compliments about Liv to choosefilmpodcast at hotmeal.com.
3: You can also comment and follow us on Twitter at FilmChoose and on Instagram at ChooseFilmPodcast.
0: You've been listening to Choose Film podcast, and join us next week for our discussion on the good, the bad, and the ugly.
3: Thanks. Hey.
0: Bye. Bye. This conversation
3: can serve no purpose anymore.
1: Goodbye. Bye.